Hey, welcome back to uh, How the Was That a Hit? Um, we have another great episode with you today. I'm, I'm Quintana, and this is Tim Foster, my partner. Hi, dude. I'm kind of the uh, kind of the pop culture guy, and Tim is the rock and roller, uh, actual musician, so he can give us the insights, the musical insights and the technical insights. So today, uh, today we're going to go over a song, which a couple of people have said to me, how in the hell can you talk about How the Was That a Hit with that song? That's obviously a genius freaking song. That's obvious one of the greatest songs of all time. But I want to go back in history a little bit, okay? Yeah. I want to go back to August 27th, uh, 1991, when this song was released. Uh, when this song was released, the number one song in the United States was Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams, right? And then you had uh, Promise of a New Day by Paula Abdul was uh, was number number five. Every Heartbeat by Amy Grant, right? That hard rocker Amy Grant. Uh, we had a little uh, holdover da- dance hit, KLF, 3 a.m. Eternal. Uh, I Can't Wait Another Minute by that, that vocal, you know, rhythm, har- R&B harmony group, High Five. Um, Motown Philly by Boys to Men. And then Things That Make You Go Hmm, kind of a novelty song by CNC Music Factory. So, you know, people are like, how can you talk about this song? Is how the f*** was that a hit? If you look at the time when this song was released, right? This was not expected. The song we're talking about, of course, is Smells Like Teen Spirit. Which was released on the Nevermind album, which was re- which was released in August on August 27th, 1991. And many people will say that's the day music changed. Yeah, that's the day. Well, it actually did. Right. This was the meteor to the glam rock dinosaurs. Right. They, wouldn't you say? I would say, yeah. Poison, well, Warrant. Yeah. And I mean, they weren't even really glam rock. They were like, gla- I think it was glam metal. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Hair, the glam hair rock metal. was, t- was, t- was uh, T-Rex. T-Rex, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the hair metal world, which, you know, in 1991, that was still a pretty... It was. A, you could make a very viable musical career uh, with some spiky hair and pointy guitars, uh, you know, singing about cherry pie or whatever. Yeah. Uh, 1991. You were, you were hot. Yeah, exactly. You were, you were getting booked. Yeah. Right? Exactly. You're signing deals. I, well, I got two more examples here, right? When this song was released, the number 14 song was Unforgettable by Nat Cole and his daughter, Natalie Cole. And the number 15 song was I Adore Mia More by Color Me Bad. So I don't want to hear these people who are telling me, oh, come on, David. That was obviously a hit. No, it wasn't. Yeah. No one saw this coming. Well, and you know, I have a different perspective on this song because I worked in a record store. At that Why moment. does that not surprise me? I worked... I got a job at Tower in the late 80s, I think 87 or 88. And so I worked in that transitional era where records were still the thing, but CDs were coming in. Mm-hmm. And I also worked in that tra- uh, transitional era where rock and roll was kind of, it was hair bands. I mm-hmm. mean, there was, you know, the Traveling Wilburys were a big band right around that time, you know, still. So, I mean, like, it was a different world. And I remember... When this record came out and all of a sudden people started playing it and they were like, Hey, this is like that kind of music you like. Cause I was the punk rocker guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And did you have little buttons. Did you wear buttons? Oh, of course. <laughs> of course I had buttons. Uh, you know, um, you still do. I think I still do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what's funny is I remember the label guys 
were losing their minds. This was my memory is it was the uni rep, Universal Music, uh, the uni rep coming in and saying, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. We only pressed, I think he told me 30,000 copies of this record because we didn't think anybody was going to buy it. So back in those days, record labels, this is something that I don't think our younger listeners can really even conceive of. Back in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, record labels were raking money in because you had to buy every single song you got. I mean, you could listen to the radio, you could watch MTV, but if you wanted to hear a song when you wanted to hear it, that meant you paid money for it. So you'd buy an album or, well, back then it was probably a CD or a cassette, and they were like 15 bucks a piece. They were, they were right. And you, you wanted one song. Exactly. Yeah. You wanted one song. Well, you had to pay 15 bucks for the whole damned album. And so those labels were just raking money. And now the other side of that is that they had figured out that by getting everyone to transition over to CDs, making a CD cost about, I think it was like 10% of what it cost to press an album. Like pressing a vinyl album is a complicated thing. A lot of things can go wrong. It's expensive to ship. It's expensive to deal with. They're bigger. They're bigger. Mm -hmm. They're also like, you get them warm and they warp. A CD, you crank that thing out, you slip it in a little plastic case. At that point, they were still coming in what called, was called a, uh, a long box. Uh, so being a, oh, I remember a, those. a cardboard yeah. box, because it had to be, it had to fit in an LP slot. Mm -hmm. And That's right. it was only five and a half inches tall or whatever, but it had to fit in a 12 inch slot because right. all the record stores had 12 inch boxes. So anyway, so... They were used to making a profit margin based on a record, which was going to sell for $9, which cost them about a buck to produce. All of a sudden, they're selling a CD for 15 bucks, mm -hmm. and it costs like 30 cents to produce. Dude. So they are just raking in the money. And one of the things that they would do with this money is they would, uh, they would sign artists that they knew weren't particularly going to sell, but they were going to get good reviews, and they were going to be sort of... Uh, you know, emissaries to the world of like rock criticism and they're going to get, you know, they're going to get written up in Rolling Stone and they're going to get positive things. So that when they would do things like CNC Music Factory, which you know, the music critics are not going to get excited about CNC Music Factory. That's what's going to sell records. But you're not going to get a cover story probably on in Rolling Stone or Spin Magazine talking about how great an artist they are. Now, even though that's not really fair and those, those artists are actually vastly underrated, but... With somebody like Nirvana, who had been a college radio darling, they had put out some records on, you know, smaller labels that got very good reviews. They thought, hey, it's not going to cost us that much. They put this money out. Well, so they signed them. They'd already put out a record. Bleach. They, they uh, put Bleach? Bleach is exactly no. right. And they put out some singles before that, too. Bleach did whatever on, I think that was on, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was on Sub Pop. So pop, yeah. Right. So which was a local Seattle mm -hmm. label, and Bleach sold some records, but all of a sudden, so the critics they, loved it though. Yeah, exactly. And so the label reps come into me, come into the store, and they're complaining. They're like, "We don't know what to do. This thing is selling, and we don't have copies. We we're they were having to stop the presses in other plants where they were pressing whatever was they thought was going to sell." And say, no, 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 stop pressing that right now. I need more copies of Nevermind. So it was absolutely a surprise hit. I know. 
And people today think, oh my God, just listen to it. Of course that was going to be giant. Of course that was a No, it wasn't. And everybody, and here's, here's, here's how, another reason, you know, everybody remembers when they first heard it because it was so different. And it was not only so different, it was so freaking good. It was so genius. So I think that that song, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, perfectly qualifies for how was that a hit. Yeah, and it was like, and here's a band, I mean, like, Nirvana was a band that, if you looked at them on paper, they should never have been successful. I mean, literally, Smells Like Teen Spirit, the title of that, uh, title of that song was because another band, Keeney Kill, stayed with them on tour. And they were joking around about, uh, about Kurt Cobain, and they wrote Kurt Cobain smells like Kurt smells like Teen Spirit on the wall of his house when they were staying there because Teen Spirit was a cheap deodorant, and Kurt didn't know this, and Kurt thought it was like this anthem thing. Like <laughs> he's like, oh, they're telling me I'm like Teen Spirit, and like so he wrote this, you know, use this thing, mm-hmm. and then later he found out like no, they're actually making fun of me for using Teen Spirit deodorant, which is. But that gives you an idea of the level of of complexity that we're dealing with. Like, they were not professionals. They were people who still had had other bands staying on their couches. And, you know, their equipment was old and, like, kind of famously stitched together. Like, Kurt Cobain was using guitars that he would stitch together out of other broken guitars because he didn't really have the money. And they were using old amplifiers. And, you know, no, I can guarantee you back then— no recording person was psyched when you brought in your 20-year-old, you know, Fender Vibrolux or whatever they, you know, were doing. They're just like, oh, this thing's going to have a hum. It's going to buzz. So they broke all the rules of the time, which is like pro gear, pro attitude. If you if you were in playing in bands, you know, I played in bands a little back then. You go into the music shop and there'd be somebody trying to get a, a band together. There's a little index card. It's pre-internet. The index card pinned up in the music shop and it'd say, looking for a drummer. Must have own car, pro gear, pro attitude. That was like, that was the standard. And Nirvana was anything but. They were like, no gear, bad attitude. <laughs> you know, I, I probably didn't have a car. Maybe that a car. Probably had like the parents' cars or something. I mean, like they were just like, they were the antithesis of what was supposed to be successful in 1991. So, so it was released in on August 27th, and by 19 by 20 by November 30th of that year, it had peaked at number six. Never mind went to number one. Yeah. That album's multi-platinum, went to number one, had another, had a, a number of good singles on it. Um, it smells Like Teen Spirit wasn't supposed to be a no. single. No, it's, I think, uh, was it Come As You Are? Come was, As You Are. The label thought, I think they were they were putting out uh, Teen Spirit as kind of the warm-up, and they thought Come As You Are was going to be the what they called AOR, album-oriented radio, which is what rock and roll radio you know, kind of splintered. And so you had like more of the rock radio that would be for adults and thoughtful people. And then you'd have rock radio that was going to be more like uh, the pop, the pop hits, maybe some hair metal and stuff like that. And so they thought that they were going to get an AOR probably like they were probably hoping for top 40, maybe for Mm -hmm. AOR single. And that was the one they identified. But you know what I think, I think the band knew that Teen Spirit was a better song because the title of that album was uh never mind and that's a lyric from oh, teen okay. spirit yeah. <laughs> you know um so it was released in you know it was released in august and hit the hit the, hit its peak at number at number six 
right, in, in on November 30th. And just to give you an example, right, even then, yeah. even as Teen Spirit had been climbing the charts, look at the songs around them at right. that time. The number one song was Michael Jackson, Black or White. Number two, again, Color Me Bad, um, uh, All for Love. Then number three was Mariah Carey, Can't Let Go. Then Boys to Men again, It's So Hard, uh, Say Goodbye to Yesterday. Then MC Hammer was right in front of them, Too Legit to Quick. And wow. MC Hammer was right behind them with Adam's Groove. So, I mean, it's still, right? I mean, this yeah. shows you this. Yes, this was. Today, it's easy to look back and go, oh, yeah, not obvious. No, it wasn't obvious. No. And it was like, you know, as you mentioned earlier, people really can remember where they were when they heard that song because it really didn't sound like other things on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not only sonically or acoustically, I mean, it. It was produced in a different way. Their songwriting was a different way. Also, the lyrics. I mean, if you if you diagram the lyrics for that song. It's a lot different than any other records from that era. It's weird. It's almost like scat poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh and it was very much, for those of us who grew up listening to college radio at that time, it was much more of that iteration, you know, of like the indie rock where you had bands like Husker Du and The Replacements and all these kind of like minor label bands that were doing weird stuff. It was much more out of that background and it was real familiar to us. Those records weren't really having hits with the exception of R.E.M. who kind of mm-hmm. did actually come out of that college radio world and then, you know, took the record record-selling world by storm, but their things were a lot more, quote-unquote, acceptable. And you could hear, clearly hear the influence of, like, the Beatles and those kind of bands, the Birds in R.E.M. And all of a sudden, Nirvana came out, and it's like, I think people were really scratching their heads to figure out where they were coming from. And, I mean, and the great thought, I think the reason that song captured the audience so quickly was because it captured the audience so quickly because when you listen to the song right away yeah. right that riff and then dave Grohl coming in with that kick drum right it's just just amazing and it's a kick drum that you won't hear in today's music pop music because it's real yeah. so you can hear him do a little hesitation when he hits the kick a little hesitation when he hits the kick and you know today it's all quantized you know it's all on a laptop they have a you know they have a sound that sounds like a kick drum but that was real, man. And when you when that came in over that riff, right? And then it dropped and changed so drastically to just yep. the guitar. It, like it captured you. It's it's hard to it's hard to explain because you're so used to it now. If you listen to Nevermind, the Nirvana record, I pulled so much stuff from the Gap Band and Cameo and Tony Thompson on every one of those songs. All that. That's wow. Old, that's old disco. That's all it is. <laughs> it's kind of like the Beatles thing. Like, if you hear the early Beatles records now, they don't sound like, I, I want to hold your hand. You don't hear that and go like, oh my gosh, this is revolutionary. But I assure you, in 1962, right. 63, in England, when they heard it, they were like, what the hell is this? And certainly when it landed in America in like February of 1964, when I want to hold your hand hit, it's like, it sounded like they were from Mars. It really wasn't that far off of what the Everly Brothers and, and Chuck Berry had been doing. But at the time, it sure seemed like it. And really, you know, 
I feel like there are a lot of precedents with what Nirvana is doing, certainly like Neil Young and guys like that who are doing kind of like noisy rock and roll. Uh, but you hadn't heard it in a long time and you hadn't heard it in that way. It wasn't quite oh. as in your face. And it wasn't also as just resolutely weird. I mean, the fact that they also like they wore torn up clothes. I mean, now we joke about the grunge look, but that was new at that it point. It was new. I'd also like to say another reason um, why I think this captured, and I think this is one of Kurt Cobain's gifts, and I think Dave Grohl has the gift too. Actually, I have a a theory. And my theory is that every great musician has seven to eight good melodies. Um, And after that, he probably has melodies, but I don't know if they're so good. Geniuses can have more, right? And that's why I think bands are important especially if they have like three or four good musicians or great musicians, a couple of great musicians, because that's more melodies that they're going to have. And if you have one genius and one great guy, you know, you're going to have a lot of melodies. So that's why you look at Led Zeppelin. They had some great genius musicians there. That's why you have so many different melodies. Let's be honest. Many, many, many Led Led Zeppelin melodies did not originate with Led Zeppelin. And, you know, they've been sued multiple times. They've lost multiple times and they should have lost. Good point. You know, so I mean, they did have their own thing, but they had a lot of other people's things. They had good musicians. Yeah. (laughs) Great musicians. Counting guys. Uh, Beatles, though, right? I mean, they had had some geniuses. Stevie Wonder. Great Mel. Oh my God. Stevie Wonder is in a class by himself. You know, uh, Curtis Mayfield from the Impressions. Like, good Lord. Like the guy was like a farm. So yeah, so I have a theory that like people have great melodies, right? Great, great musicians have a li- finite amount of great melodies. After that, they kind of, and that's why a lot of these guys run out of shit after their second album, because they've been carrying these melodies around since they were fifteen, right? Yeah. And in their first album, man, they got six hits. But I think Kurt Cobain, when it's one of those gifted, like one of those gifted guys in that genre, that just had the gift for melody. Although I would say, like, hardly your what you're, I think, calling a melody in this case is what I would call a riff. Because, like, well, the thing about uh, the thing about Teen Spirit is that riff. Well, no, I I understand the riff, yeah. but I also mean the melody. Yeah. Um, because, like, "Come as You Are" is just a beautiful yeah. melody. Um, I think I actually think that part of this is is very melodic. Yeah. Um, oh, for so, sure. so uh, yeah. I mean, Kurt Cobain box is. Great melody. Kurt Cobain is a, at heart, was a pop guy. I mean, he, before, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. when he was a, a not famous yet, he had, like, famously in a notebook written the top 50 records. Oh, he's like The greatest 50 albums of all time. Oh, yeah. He did <laughs> his own little top 50 and like you, I did. And they found it, and they found it. And what's interesting is, like, you know, I mean, a lot of that stuff is very pop-oriented, and it's not the hard rock you would think at all. And, it, in fact, and it's also incredibly eclectic, which we'll get to where we're going later. I mean, like, he had a local band from Sacramento called Tales of Terror, who was Sacramento's best punk rock band in the 80s. Basically unknown outside of Sacramento, really. He, he said that their debut album was five places ahead of Meet the Beatles, <laughs> as far as the top 50 of all. <laughs> Mind you, so this is a guy who was a music fan, yeah. like, on another level. Because nobody really knew that record at all. He not only knew it, but he ranked it yeah. 
as like, I think it was number 30, the greatest 50 records of all time. So, so I like to thank you for cutting through my noise. And you, I think you put it, I think you put it, what I was trying to say in so many words, which was he had pop music sensibility when it came to melodies. Absolutely. He really did. And, and, and then he combined it right with that musicality that he had with those, with those instruments and the way yeah. they played. And it was just, it was great. Sure. And you know, one way you can always tell that for me, like the difference between like a melody and a, and, uh, and a beat. Is like a melody is a song you could hum or that gets stuck in your head and you sing along and you could play it like on a, just on a single piano or an acoustic guitar and it'll still hold together. Good luck doing that with a James Brown hit. Right. James Brown hits were all about the beat. The beat. Yeah. And it's like, that was what was so unique. And he was really the first guy to say, hey, melody, get lost. I don't, you're not important. But I mean, a good melody is really, we're, we're hardwired to just have them resonate yeah. in our brains. And here's the other way I can, I judge a good melody. A good melody has, you're able to cover it in many different genres. Exactly. Yeah. And if you look at Smells Like Teen Spirit and other, and other Nirvana songs, you can see classic covers. You can see country covers yep. because it's a timeless melody that he yep. had. He really did have pop, pop sensibility Very about much. that. So let's talk about the, the riff. So the riff, you know, the big, we all know that riff. It's really, it is a great riff. And so where did that riff come from? There's this big, you know, thing where people just say, oh, well, it's from Boston's More Than a Feeling. And so you hear that song, you go, oh, I can kind of hear that. It's it's a lot more uh, like his is a lot. The Nirvana version is a lot looser. It's different, different chords, but I mean it's similar. But what's really interesting to me is that Nirvana knew this and they joked about it. You know the, the similarity. And in fact, there's video footage of them playing live, and they start playing some '91 or '92. They start playing more than a feeling instead of mm-hmm. of Nevermind instead of uh, Teen Spirit. And you hear it and you're like, oh. And then when they shift into playing Teen Spirit, it really underscores how different those songs are. Because it's like when they're playing the more than a feeling thing, you're like, oh, that does sound like Teen Spirit. And then they immediately shift into Teen Spirit and you're like, no, it doesn't. It sounds a lot different. And so there is certainly a similarity there. I'm not going to argue that maybe there wasn't some inspiration there, but I have a conspiracy theory. What is that, Tim? My conspiracy theory is that that riff came from a little band called the Dagger Men, who were a British band from the Medway scene, released an album in 1986, and on that album was a song called That Girl. Listen to the riff from That Girl. It's the same. It's not like, oh, that's really close. It's the same. As a musician who has played, like my entire career has been like writing riffs exactly like that. Like I want a rock and roll riff that sounds kind of like the Kinks might have done it or the Trogs that's going to get stuck in your head and it's got a swing to it. Like trying to write things like that. 
And even though it seems like there's a limited amount of risk, the reality is it's really hard to write one of those kind of riffs that sounds original. And it is conceivable to me that somehow David Taylor, who wrote that riff for this band, The Dagger Men, came up with that riff in 1986. And then independently across the world, six years later, uh, Kurt Cobain independently, coincidentally came up with the same riff. But I think that's unlikely. I think what's more likely is that at some point, somebody in the Seattle music scene got a copy of that record and either played it at a party and Kurt heard it, or I think even more likely, the radio station there, which I think was KCMU at the time, was college radio station, uh, which I think might be KEXP now. I'm not, I'm not from Seattle, so I don't know that area. But the college radio station there was really the, the bubbling up place for grunge music. And uh, the people who ran Sub Pop got their start as DJs at that college radio station. And interestingly enough, an early Sub Pop record, right at the same time as they were putting out Kurt Cobain's uh, Nirvana records, was by another band, from that same town in England, the Medway area, uh, the Headcoats. And we know that uh, Kurt Cobain was a Headcoats fan, was wearing a Headcoats t-shirt at some point. So he was aware of that scene. And that's a, the Medway scene is a very small scene. And they all were kind of doing the same thing where they were kind of sounding basically as though everything between 1966 and 1980 never happened. They were basically like, what if the what if we ignored everything after the trogs and they just started from there? So they basically did sort of like proto punk rock kind of stuff, but it was all really stripped down and really sounded again very much like the Kinks or the Trogs or those kinds of bands, um, you know, like the Beatles, the Star Club, you know, <laughs> the Beatles before they they got signed when they were still wearing the leather jacket. And it was this little moment in England. Anyway, there were a lot of records there. We know that Kurt was a fan of some of that music because he's because he knew Billy Childish. Quarryman? Uh well, Quarryman was the original Beatles one. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, so exactly. So the the Medway thing, they were all obsessed with the Quarryman. You know, <laughs> they don't care about Sergeant Beatles, Peppers yeah. at all. <laughs> they care about the Quarryman, uh, you know, and Long John and the Silver Beatles. So we know that Kurt Cobain was aware of that scene and that he was a fan of the headcoats. And I think he may have even played with the headcoats who toured here um in their early days. I have never been able to pin down how a copy of the Daggerman record would have gotten there, but my suspicion is that somebody at that radio station had a copy of that record and played it, and that girl was the catchy song off that record, and played it, Kurt Cobain heard it, probably then forgot about it. Embedded in his but head. But it embedded in his head, and he was writing a song lyrics. That's how really how so many songs happen. And I have no proof. You know, there's no way to ever know, but I'm like, the riff is the same. It's like the same tempo. It's the same. It is, if you listen to it, you're like, this is the same. And it's conceivable that it was purely coincidental that they came up with something totally different. But the fact that there were so many connections, I mean, the head coach released a record on Sub Pop. So again, this mm -hmm. is not that far of a stretch. Um, but I would love to know. I would love to ask those guys, you know, the surviving members of Toronto, like, hey, did, did you ever hear, does this sound even vaguely familiar um, yeah, huge fans. But he was a but he was a huge music fan, and he was again his his top his number five record of all time was a record by the Shags 
which is a group of sisters from New Hampshire who self-pressed their own album in like a thousand copies. And then I think like sold 50 and the rest got lost, but it's become this legendary thing for him. And it's most people consider it unlistenable because it's very strange. Uh, it's really indescribably strange music, but for him, he listed that as the fifth greatest record of all time. So he looked for weird stuff. It would not be that far out of the, out of the ordinary. And also we know that he was kind of obsessed with that college radio station because what was the first thing he did when the first Nirvana single came out, he and his girlfriend got in the car, drove from Aberdeen, wherever they lived. They gave a copy to the DJ. They got in the car. They were driving home, listening to the station and didn't hear it. And they were bummed. He pulled over, got on a cell phone. This is not a cell phone. Yeah, got on a pay, pay phone. phone Calls and pretends to be someone else goes, Hey, I heard you guys have the new Nirvana single. Can you play it? And requested his own record and they played it. Oh my God. So, I mean, this is a guy that was listening to that station. So, okay. you know, I would love to know if there's someone out there that worked at that station in 1989 or 87 or something like that. I was like, Oh, yeah, Daggerman record was absolutely in rotation. I'd love to know. But that's my conspiracy theory yeah, is, that, is that the Daggerman were the inspiration for this song. And, you know, there's, I'm and not the only one who thinks this. Because that Daggerman record is a hundred dollar record if you could find it. Really? Yeah, I think a lot the of single people, or the album. it's an album. Yeah, okay. um, and I think it's because people have figured this out. Okay. You know, that's a good conspiracy, man. Yeah. I like it. So might even be true. Yeah, <laughs> call <laughs> Alex Jones. Actually, don't call Alex. Let's Jones. just call it true. Yeah. Hey, um, so what? What part of the song? What? What do you think it is? What do? You, how do you feel the lyrics? I'm not the lyrics, but the vocals affected this because. At the end, at the end of the song, when he's going in denial, yeah, and just over and over. That's again something yeah. that you would hear that on some. You know what I mean? Not you wouldn't hear that on pop radio. No, you would only you hear that on like college radio. And right on college so radio. So it's interesting, like. To to get back again to the Staggerman record, there's a big difference. I was saying that those guys from that scene, guys and ladies, you know, lady bands too, um, the Delmonas, notably, uh, their thing was kind of looking backwards. They were making records like the Daggerman record sounds like it could have been released in 1966. The Nirvana record sounds, it's going forward. And what they did was they took what had started with kind of garage rock in the 60s and then was reawakened by punk rock in the seventies. And then it had been quickly like shoved aside by new wave music, which, you know, kind of like took the rougher edges of the sex yeah. pistols and all that and made it more palatable and more marketable. Well, he ignored all that. He was like, no, we're pushing the envelope now. So the thing about that record is it has all the elements of rock and roll music that we get, the big guitars, the bombastic drums, the kind of like, over a mode of singing, all the things that already were happening in other records, especially again, Neil Young is a perfect example, but to have all those elements there, then that pop sensibility that you talk mm -hmm. about and the dynamics, that thing where it gets really loud and then gets really quiet. Yeah. I can just imagine when the record label guy, I whoever, heard that whoever the guy in the suit, he was like, how am I going to get radio stations to play this? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you don't do that. No, exactly. I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's something like, you know, you you got to be careful with that kind of stuff. It's it, you know, they were worried about putting people off, and in its own way, that was very off-putting music. Like you couldn't ignore that record. 
You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it was really very forceful, very well, forward thinking, but, and very brash. And it really was just a magic moment. And immediately, like when you heard that record, in fact, you heard their whole album. It's like all of a sudden, all the rock music that we had been hearing, you know, like certainly mm-hmm. anything from like the hair bands, like Poison or whatever, Warrant, they were still pretty big at that period. It seemed pretty tame. It's, and it sounded cheap. And it sounded, yeah, it yeah, sounded, it, it sounded small. It sounded yeah. kind of corny, it sounded rinky dink. You know, it's like, it sounded bubblegum. I, I actually, after, after Teen Spirit came out, I actually, people started feeling a little embarrassed for them. Yeah. Uh, are you still walking around with that makeup on? Absolutely. I mean, come on, guy. Um, yeah. It, I mean, yeah, it, it really did. It, and what's ironic is, of course, I think a lot of the grunge bands, I don't know about Nirvana per se, but a lot of those bands, they actually had a real soft spot for all those, you know, like the glammy kind of bands. Mm-hmm. I think that they had grown up, a lot of them had grown up on that and then kind of out, quote unquote, outgrown it. Uh, but they just basically killed that scene. They, they really did. So, I mean, again, uh, again, not how the f- was it a hit, but the power of that one single song, it was a genre that already existed underground um, or right. within, it was a scene, right? Yeah. But it created a genre. Yeah. Well, it when, pulled them all up with them. It went mainstream. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's like, there was Pearl Jam and Mud Honey and uh-huh. so many other bands. I think the Sound only- Garden. Yeah. Sound Garden. I think the only band in Seattle that didn't get signed was Cat Butt, <laughs> another grunge band. Mother, I mean, Mother Love Bone yeah. was ahead of them, right. but they didn't have that pop sensibility. That well, they, had. And they didn't have that kind of- either yeah yeah right right and so what's funny is so then you had them come along and then later on a couple just a couple years later you had green day come along and like then you had the pop punk thing where they were a little more consumable they were a little less threatening a little more like you know fun you know you listen to the nirvana records there's clearly some pain in there even in their poppiest records they sound Somewhat tormented. Yeah, I think evidence of this is that there's only one guy left. Yeah. Eddie Vedder's the only one left. Oh, oh no, I was talking about Nirvana. Oh, no, no, but I mean, oh. of that entire scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's it. I mean, they've all, you know, they've all, they're all gone. Yeah. Right? The lead singer forever, the lead singers. Anyway, yeah, yeah. They're all, they're all out, man. Yeah. Um. So, should it have been a hit? I think this is kind of a redundant question. I think, well, I think it very clearly was a game changer and it certainly should have been hit because it's a great production. I mean, I, at that time, when I worked in the, in the record store, you know, I got to hear a million records all the time because they were playing everything mm-hmm. that came out new and none of it really made that much of an impression on me. I love that record a nanosecond. I heard it. And mind mm-hmm. you, I wasn't listening to commercial radio, really. I didn't like, I wasn't listening to Paul Abdul. I wasn't listening yeah. to Warren, but I heard something there. And then what's funny is many years later, I realized, oh, I'd already known Nirvana. I just didn't know it because I had been hearing their earlier records on our local college radio station, KDVS, back, you know, years before that. But because Kurt had a propensity to name his songs things that didn't mm-hmm. connect to the lyrics, I had no idea that this song that I'd been hearing, which I thought was probably called Ma- Grandma Take Me Home, was not called Grandma Take Me Home. And so years later, I heard it on a collection of early singles. I'm like, oh. I liked that band years ago. I didn't even know it. So, I mean, they really, they really just captured the zeitgeist of that moment. And so absolutely think it should have been hit, but it, I'll tell you, they could have gone with a different producer, 
didn't get what they were doing, didn't let them create, bring their sound in the studio, that made them use different equipment, that made them play a little differently, and that record would have disappeared without can a trace. I, Can I tell you this? Um, there actually is a different version of the song that was produced in the way they wanted it. Huh. And I've read, uh, you can, you know, uh, for, for listeners, you can look this up, but um, they it's called Unlistenable. And this was what Kurt Cobain wanted. It's much rougher. Now, is it available? Can people actually hear it or not? I don't know. I, I'm assuming it's probably snuck onto the internet somewhere because so much of their stuff has been released, yeah. right? Through bootlegs, et cetera. Yeah. Um, it, but, but I've only read about it, and it said the version that they wanted was unlistenable um, because it was rougher, right? Yeah. It was rougher. It was more in your face. It didn't have that slickness, yep. right? So in the beginning, when you get the Dave Grohl, you know, they go around twice, and then you get that drop into that, you know, chimey guitar. Yeah. Like it was just rougher, right? It wasn't as smooth, because that's hard to do. I mean, to produce that is really tough to go from there to there. Sure. Well, and, and then the other thing is on the flip side, they could have easily gotten a producer who was more used to hair metal bands, mm. who was going to try to like fit them into the box, like just make, you know, clean up their sound a little bit. And that I think would have been the kiss of death yeah. if it would have just sounded more commercial. Yeah. No more screaming at the end, Kurt. Yeah, Stop it. Exactly. Or, or if they would have done what so many people do, they would like put some sort of a vocal, pro like tons of reverb and processor on there yeah. to clean it up and make it pretty. Um, yeah. So, so they were unhappy with the single um, as it was released because they felt it wasn't the one that they wanted. But, you know, hey, what is what it is, right? Producers get the last say because they're the guys pressing the shit out there. Yeah. So they went with, but the producer knew, right? The producer, I think probably a producer listening to this, you're like, oh, we got something here. I'm going to make this. This is my opportunity, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I uh, should it have been a hit? Yeah, I agree. I, I, I believe it should have been a hit. You know, it just that top 10 that I read to you. If you're listening to that, and I lived through that, right? I mean, that was pretty sappy. If you wanted to hear music, you had to go off the charts to really hear good music at that time. Yeah. So to hear something like this, it was just it was just such a shot of excitement into the music scene. Again, you good music existed, but it wasn't on the charts, yeah. right? And so finally, here was something coming in. Um, would it be a hit today? I'll answer this first from my perspective. Yes. Again, and we've talked about this before. My concern is always the the lack of attention span for music for today's music consumer, um, where if they don't like something in the first 10 seconds, they just, you know, they swipe left or, you know, hit forward. Uh, but the beginning of this song, there is it cannot be ignored. Right. The beginning of the song, you cannot ignore it. And so, yeah, I think this definitely would be a hit if released today. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think like it basically set the precedent that we're still all going through. And and like so they were, I guess, one of the last really big pre-internet bands. Because 91, there was really, for all intents and purposes, no internet. And things have stopped changing so much. Like once you got used to the internet, like early 2000s, you had access to whatever you wanted at any given time. It's like, it used to be that things changed all the time. And now like you can hear a record today that maybe sounded like it was recorded 10 years ago, or, you know, it's just like, there's a lot more options and they, they're really the ones who kind of set this new sound 
And we're still in that new sound. We are. It, it sounds like a record that could be easily could be big today. And it is. I mean, it's being covered a lot of Post Malone. There's a there's a great video of Post Malone covering this. Tori Amos does a good job of covering this. There are great classical covers of this. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think the, the evidence is all around us. That this song would be hit today. Well, and then the other uh, the other evidence, Dave Grohl still has a career. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, right. Dave Grohl, uh, right. he came out front and started, you know, fronting a band, uh, Foo Fighters, and has been along, you know, been around. And I don't know, maybe I'm a skeptic, but I don't know the Foo Fighters would be particularly successful if he hadn't been the guy from Nirvana. If he was just like Joe Blow from, you know, from Fresno, who decided he was going to try to make it with his rock band, he might still be in Fresno. Yeah, right. Because you know? he'd have to go find a find a, exactly. find a label. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, yeah, so this has been great. And I, I hope that for those folks that were saying, oh, my God, of course that should have been hit. I hope we've proven to you that it wasn't necessarily... This was not <laughs> written in stone that uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit was going to rise, you know, become the legendary song that it is today. Um, and again, for those people uh, who are watching or listening, if you would like for us to cover a song um, that that you've always wondered, of, you know, how the fuck was that a hit? We'd love to hear from you. Um, Storyland Vocal Band, The Night Chicago Died. <laughs> <laughs> anything like that we're ready for you man um and again tim rock thank the you. boat by the used corporation oh my god i love that song uh tim thank you so much thanks it's been David. fun and uh thank you all see you next time hey if you like what you hear like and subscribe it really means a lot and we would love to have you coming back every week thank you my